you're listening to a podcast from Oasis Church Waterloo. To find out more, visit www.oasiswaterloo.org. Optimistic. It's one of my favourite songs. I'll read some of the words in case you didn't hear them. It says, keep on, never say die. When in the midst of sorrow you can't see up when looking down, a brighter day tomorrow will bring. You hear the voice of reason telling you this can't be done. No matter how hard reality seems, just hold on to your dreams. Don't give up, don't give in. Although it seems you'll never win, you will always pass the test. As long as you keep your head to the sky, you can always win. As long as you keep your head to the sky, you will win as long as you keep your head to the sky. Be optimistic. What if in your optimism that doesn't work? What if it all fails, it all goes wrong, and you find yourself in the middle of devastation? My chosen book today is about that. It's called um, Night by Ellie Weissel. If I can have the first slide, please. Um, It's a devastating book. It's about the Holocaust. Um, This is a very good counterbalance, perhaps, to what we've already heard from Paul and Jim about their visit to Palestine. Um, Ellie Weissel was a 15-year-old when he was taken to the concentration camps, both Auschwitz and um, Birkenwald. He wrote the book in 1958. It was written, firstly, in French, um, but it, it has been translated into many different languages. And the book is really graphic detail of the Nazi regime attempting to alienate Jewish people in the Second World War. Next slide, please. He says in the book, some books cite sorrow, others joy, some both. This book is deeply sorrowful. It's really hard to read. We're talking about summer reads. Um, You might not want to take this one away with you on your summer holiday. Um, But I think there are lots of lessons in here for us. Um, It talks about the implications or the results of the horrors of racism. Um, I'm sure, you know, we all all know about the Holocaust. Um, It shows a society that's deeply divided. Indeed, our own society today is deeply divided, isn't it? So perhaps in there, there are many lessons for us. But it's so, um, was interesting for me because He talks very clearly about his faith. And when the circumstances of your life throw up um, realities that questions your faith, what do you do? What what do you do with that? And I think it's really good for people of faith to um, ponder over these things. How do we deal with life when it all goes wrong? When it isn't like the song says, when it isn't, you know, we've just held on, we've held on, we've kept our head to the sky, we've prayed, we've done all the things, and it still doesn't work out. What do we do? That place of darkness, that night 
where God doesn't seem to be there. If there's anything akin to joy in the book for me, it's the joy of the remarkable ability of this man, this extraordinary, extraordinary man, to overcome. Thankfully, he was able to leave the camps. Um, many didn't, of course, we know. Um, and throughout his life, he campaigned for, not only for Jewish causes, but he was also an advocate for causes in South Africa, Nicaragua, um, Kosovo, and Sudan. And he actually won the Nobel Peace Prize in 1986 for all the campaigning and the peace advocacy that he engaged in. So I guess in a sense, there's a happy story there, but you have to hold those two things in tension because there were very many who didn't survive the camps. And so I approach this book with a great deal of humility. I'm not a Jew. Um, and I am a black person and I have suffered racism in my life, so I know obviously a bit about that, um, but obviously nothing on this scale. And today what I want to do is to give a brief overview of the book. I'm going to read some passages, um, and I want to read the passages because his language is very beautiful. He is able to express devastation in a way that I couldn't do if I were just summarizing it. And I think it's important to actually engage in the literature. And then I'm going to reflect on some of my own responses to reading this book and talk a little bit about the challenges that I think it raises for us today in the 21st century. Next slide, please. <clears throat> So the book starts off, and he talks about his early life in Romania, happy childhood. He was a deep re religious boy. He studied the Talmud and studied his Judaism very, very seriously. He talks about his close family, grandfather coming around to celebrate the Jewish festivals, mother trying to find a match for the sister, very ordinary family going about their everyday business. And then there are some hints on the horizon that all may not be well. Um, but they carry on with life. Um, and there's a character, Moshi. He's a foreign Jew who has been expelled from their town, but he manages to escape. And he makes his way back to the town to warn people of the impending doom. But he isn't believed. Um, and you know, everyone wants to be positive, be optimistic, and it reminds me of attitudes that sometimes we, we have in our world. You know, just think positively, all will be well, don't engage with negative thoughts. And while I believe to have a positive disposition is an important thing, sometimes we have to engage with the realities that are facing us around. In the book he says, the ghetto was ruled by neither German nor Jew. It was ruled by delusion. Sometimes we delude ourselves because to engage with the reality is too difficult to comprehend. Another, another passage from the book dealing with this. He says, it was spring, 1944. Splendid news on the Russian front. There could no longer be any doubt. Germany will be defeated. It was only a matter of time, months, weeks perhaps. The trees were in bloom, like so many others with its springs. 
its engagements, its weddings, its birth. The people were saying, the Red Army is advancing with giant strides. Hitler will not be able to harm us, even if he wants to. And when you read, because we know the outcome of the story, you read that, you know, for really sorrowful heart, knowing what's going to come next. Next slide, please. And then there's a sense of kind of like this escalating train, this roller coaster. And here on this side, I apologize if you can't see it. It says, it all happened so fast. The ghetto, the deportation, the sealed cattle car, the fiery altar upon which the history of our people and the future of mankind were meant to be sacrificed. And you probably know that um, first the Jews were herded into these ghettos and they thought perhaps that was going to be um, their existence. But then the cattle trains came, they were deported and taken to the camps. So the circumstances unfold, next slide please, where he and his father are taken to the camps. His mother and sister are killed there. He describes the awful, awful conditions that are in these camps. He sees the furnaces where people are burnt alive. And this is quite a, a shocking extract that I'll read for you. He says, a truck drew close and unloaded its load. Small children, babies. Yes, I did see this with my own eyes. Children thrown into the flames. Is it any wonder that ever since then, sleep tends to elude me? He describes people suffering, mental breakdown, starvation, poor sanitary conditions. So they're the physical um, deprivation. But also, there's also the loss of humanity, almost, where people are scrabbling over a piece of bread. You know, they throw aside all of their morals in order to save their skin. They, they um, uh, speak out against each other. You know, there's a, it's almost a dog-eats-dog -dog situation. People becoming more and more selfish, cheating, lying, denying their principles to save their skin. So the, the um, deprivation is not only physical, but psychological and the loss of morality that's seen there. Next slide, please. This is another extract. Never shall I forget that night, the first night in the camp, that turned my life into one long night, several times sealed. Never shall I forget smoke. Never shall I forget the small faces of the children whose bodies I saw transformed into smoke under the silent sky. Never shall I forget those flames that consumed my faith forever. Never shall I forget the nocturnal silence that deprived me for all eternity of the desire to live. Never shall I forget those moments that murdered my God and my soul and turned my dreams to ashes. Never shall I forget those things, even were I condemned to live as long as God himself. Never.
So what do you do? You've had faith. You've been optimistic. What do you do with that experience wherein you're in a place and you're seeing babies thrown into the furnace? He seems to suggest that we shouldn't forget, that we shouldn't blank it out, that we shouldn't just move on to the next thing. But how do we hold in tension the terror of that experience? We're told that history has to repeat itself because if it doesn't, we forget. So how do we ensure that these um, genocides don't happen again? And that's the role of memory we have to remember. I also think in this extract that the phrase, murdered my God, is a telling one. So on the one hand, you could think about that as murdered my God, as you're not believing anymore, not trusting anymore. You don't believe that a good God could allow the devastation of a people in this sense. But also it says to me that maybe the gods that we have have to be murdered. Maybe when you find yourself in that circumstances, the God that you have doesn't work anymore. You have to find a new God. You have to find a God that can accommodate and hold in tension that extreme suffering and everything that you're going through. You have to engage, perhaps, with a different experience of faith. Does that faith need to be the previous faith you have? Does it need to be destroyed? What do you do? How do you, how do you cope with that? Because to have no faith at all or to have no hope in those situations is devastating. Next slide. This is one of the most um, significant passages for me in the book, and I warn you, it's quite graphic. One day, as we returned from work, we saw three gallows, three black ravens erected on the Appleplatz roll call. The SS surrounding us, machine guns aimed at us, the usual ritual. Three prisoners in changes, and around them, the little Pipel, the sad-eyed angel. The SS seemed more preoccupied, more worried than usual. To hang a child in front of thousands of onlookers was not a small matter. The head of the camp read the verdict. All eyes were on the child. He was pale, almost calm, but he was biting his lips as he stood in the shadow of the gallows. This time, the lager carper refused to act as executioner. Three SS took his place. The three condemned prisoners together stepped onto the chairs. In unison, the nooses were placed around their necks. Long live liberty, shouted the two men, but the boy was silent. Where is merciful God? Where is he? Someone behind me was asking. At the signal, the three chairs were tipped over. Total silence in the camp. On the horizon, the sun was setting. Caps off, screamed the Largan test. His voice quivered. As for the rest of us, we were weeping. 
Cover your heads. Then came the march past the victims. The two men were no longer alive. Their tongues were hanging out, swollen and bluish. But the third rope was still moving. The child, too light, was still breathing. And he remained there for more than half an hour, lingering between life and death, writhing before our eyes. And we were forced to look at him at close range. He was still alive when I passed him. His tongue was still red, his eyes not yet extinguished. Behind me, I heard the same man asking, for God's sake, where is God? And within me, I heard an answer. Where he is, he is here, hanging from this gallows. Next slide, please. So, as I said, the book raised many, many, many challenges for me. Um, I've read it several times. Um, and it's a short book, so you can read it very quickly. But I think for every time I've read it, it's raised different things. And this quote that I came across, um, one thing people remember is why the Jews didn't didn't defend themselves, why we were like lambs led to the slaughter. In truth, many Jews fought back bravely, but the Holocaust was so well planned that we were overwhelmed. It started with little acts of racism and discrimination and eventually led to the murder of millions of innocents. We must, not let the we must never think the Holocaust can never happen again. So, I was struck by this, by the little acts of racism, little acts of discrimination, and thinking, you know, in our society, are there those little acts of racism? And sometimes they're very small things, conversations around the water cooler, jokes, slight underminings, maybe in meetings at work where some people are overlooked, and um, not involved. Maybe within our families, certain people not celebrated and upheld. Those little acts of exclusion, but those little acts can create a culture, and cultures take over institutions, and institutions can enact devastation, as we've heard earlier on the Palestinian side, but also in this circumstance as well. So it is important for us to remember and not to think, oh, well, it happened all those years ago. That's never going to happen again. We wouldn't do that in the 21st century. You know, we're moderns. We wouldn't do that. But we have to remember. I think we must remember. And indeed, there are acts of genocide going on now all over the world. We need to remember. We need to reflect. And we need our response. We need to consider what we can do. Another challenge for me is to think about when we reflect on that. You know, I often think, well, if I were there, would I have been one of the people fighting and advocating on behalf of the Jews? Would I have been hiding Jews in my house? Would I have been 
looking after the children? Would I have sacrificed myself? Would I have put my way in danger of the authorities? And perhaps we think about the Jewish Christians that were there. What were they doing? Why weren't they advocating for these people? How were things allowed to get out of control in a country where there were so many churches? And it has to be said that not all German Christians were part of the devastation. Um, this quote here that I've got from Martin Neimuller was pastor of the Confessing Church, and the Confessing Church stood out against the Reich. The churches were forced to pledge allegiance to Hitler, but they were refused, and many of them were persecuted by the state. Bonhoeffer, many of you will have heard of, who tried to assassinate Hitler, was also part of this group. I'd like to think that I would have been in that church, that I would have been in part of that struggle to protect the Jews. We always want to put ourselves on the side of good, don't we? And there's this fantastic quote that, um, that from Nye Muller. He says, first they came for the socialists, and I did not speak out because I was not a socialist. Then they came for the trade unionists, and I did not speak out because I was not a trade unionist. Then they came for the Jews, and I did not speak out because I was not a Jew. Then they came for me, and there was no one left to speak for me. So it's important, isn't it, to put ourselves on the side of the good, even when they are not part of us, because we don't know what's going to happen. Eventually, there might be a time that they're coming for us. And it also makes me think about what are our blind spots in this time? You know, we think back then to the Second World War, but what are the devastations that are going on now? What will generations to come look back on 2019 and saying, what were those Christians doing? Why didn't they do something? Why didn't they act? Why didn't they stand up? Why didn't they fight more vociferously on behalf of the others who were suffering so terribly in that time? So what are the blind spots? What are the things that we're not seeing in our age? Is there a similar Holocaust going on in another area of society, in another country that we're not aware of? Or are not actively engaged in, in the way that we, that this confessing church were. What will the next generation say about us? Um, and then to reflect back on my song, and I've said sometimes to be optimistic isn't enough. We will endure suffering, suffering comes. Suffering is part of life whether it's suffering that's um, enacted by institu institutions or the personal suffering in our own life. And we believe, we believe, don't we, in a Christ of hope. We believe in a God who has hope for us and hope indeed in, in our world. This quote from Maltman, hope finds in Christ not only a consolation in suffering, but against the protests of the divine promise against suffering. So somehow we have to hold in tension the devastation of our world, experience of suffering, evil and death. God is suffering. God is on the gallows. God is on the cross. He is suffering. So when we see the devastations that exist around us, what will our response be? But we must still have hope. 
We believe in the God, um, Martin Luther King says, the arc of the universe tends towards justice, is drawn to justice. So even though we may see many devastations, we may not see the, the resolution of those devastations within our lifetime. We still have to advocate on the part of the good, on the part of justice. In his Nobel Prize speech, Weissel said, we must always take sides. Neutrality never helps the oppressor, never the victim. Silence encourages the tormentor, never the tormented. So we, we have to take a stand. We can't sit on the fence. We can't be neutral. We have to find a way, even it's in the little things, in our personal relationships, in our relationships at work, maybe in bigger things, um, educating ourselves about some of the devastations in society, and then to find a way to actively involve ourselves um, so that w these devastations that can take place, that can take place, don't happen again within our lifetime. And the passage that um, Dan read earlier, I'll just repeat the end of it. When did you see when did we see you hungry or thirsty or homeless or shivering or sick or in prison and didn't help? He will answer them, I'm telling the solemn truth. When you fail to do one of these things to someone who was being overlooked or ignored, that was me. You failed to do it for me. So for me, this passage says two things in conclusion. It says that there will be suffering, there will be hunger, there will be thirst, there will be homelessness, there will be people who are sick, and imprisoned. But Jesus' challenge to us is what are we going to do about it? Which side are we going to stand on? We have the power to alleviate suffering in our society. You, know, you may say, well, I'm at the bottom of the pile. I can't do anything. I believe that we all can do something. No matter how young we are, no matter how old we are, we can all take a stand. And I want to encourage all of us, myself included, to learn how to be an advocate of the other. Dan was talking earlier about a posture, you know, prayer is a posture. I want to try to ensure that my life is a posture towards the other. So in everything I do, when I meet someone at the bus stop, when I'm in work, when I'm in, in big public meetings, I'm an advocate of the other. Um, so my call to action for you this week is to do th two things. First of all, read the book. And the second thing is find a way that you can advocate to someone who needs a helping hand from you. Thank you very much. You've been listening to a podcast from Oasis Church Waterloo. To find out more, visit www.oasiswaterloo.org.